So what I'm doing now is writing books um, about a myriad of characters, but I've now created a character um, who has apps and seizures, different expressions, so that it's separate enough from me. I don't feel like I'm writing myself. It's too limiting that way. Um, but the point of that character is to start creating awareness that there are different types of epilepsy out there. And by creating awareness, you can create empathy and then hopefully with time acceptance. That was Lori Strauss, freelance content writer and author. Through her work with Pulse InfoFrame and other clients, Lori has been using her abilities as a writer to help patient groups tell compelling stories. Lori lives with a rare form of epilepsy and sits down to discuss her diagnostic journey and how advocacy groups can use storytelling to better capture the patient's voice. Hello, and welcome to Real Talk, Real World Data the Pulse InfoFrame podcast highlighting the incredible potential of registries, natural history studies, and other real-world data. I am your host, Joshua Henderson, and on this podcast, we meet with patients and patient advocates, industry, and researchers to discuss their unique perspectives on the value, the challenges, and the impact of real-world data. Let's jump right in. Lori, thanks so much for coming on Real Talk, Real World Data and sharing your story with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joshua. So to start, can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you became part of the rare disease community, both on a personal level and professionally? Sure. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer. Like That was my dream since I was a kid. But as a kid, um, you know, writer means writing books. And I didn't realize that writing could mean, you know, writing anything. And it wasn't until I think well into my twenties that I realized that marketing was an option um, because I thought marketing was not a good thing to be in. Right. And I didn't realize that marketing can actually help people. And so I write to help people. And so I do that um, partly through writing uh, blog posts, website copy, you know, but informative things. So the content I write for Pulse, for example, is helpful, but I also write novels. And hopefully that content, though fictional, is also helpful for people. And I came about the um, rare disease community completely by fluke. Uh, the introduction to Pulse InfoFrame was through a mutual contact um, that I had with uh, Famita. He introduced us, and that was four years ago. And then I think well over a year ago, um, uh, through Rare Evolution, who also helps Pulse with their content. We did uh, an epilepsy month, something like that. And I thought, you know what? It's been a while since I've seen a neurologist. My seizures are minor, so frequent, but minor. I have absence seizures. My eyes flicker. And it's been a long time since I'd seen a neurologist, as I said. Um, the last time I'd seen one was in my 20s, but I'd met my soon-to-be husband at the time. We knew we were going to have kids pretty fast, and a lot of the anti-seizure medication can cause problems with uh, the fetus. So um, chose not to take any at the time again. Anyways, so long story short, with the research that we were sharing on our Pulse channels, I thought it's time to look into it again. And so I was connected with a neurologist who works and researches through the University Health Network out of Toronto. 
And he put me onto a pyramid. And I suddenly got a lot more interested in epilepsy again because my seizures are minor. I can kind of have them under the radar a bit. Some people notice them, many don't. And what ended up happening is through the oddly gift of social media, I found somebody who called, who was talking about something called Javen's syndrome and her eyes flickered. And I was like, my eyes flicker. What is Javen's syndrome? So I look it up and I'm like, that's me. So I told my, um, told my neurologist about it. He asked me to spell it for him. So I did. And he said, yep, mm -hmm, yep, yep, yep. That's you. So that was my diagnosis. And, um, Anyways, so not only was, you know, the introduction of Paul's pure chance, turns out I have a rare condition, pure chance, um, and here I am writing about rare diseases for a company that specializes in patient registries for rare disease, and I have one. So, full circle. Yeah, it's such a fascinating story, because I think it's so unusual to hear that actually your your involvement in the rare disease space, one thing led to another, sort of helped spark and lead to your diagnosis rather than, you know, having a diagnosis and being a part of the community, you know, really being the thing that drives your greater engagement and interest in the rare disease space. Although I imagine for you that your work in, in rare disease now takes on new meaning. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was a bit, I think I already had experience, but it wasn't, I didn't have a name for it because it's very rare for an adult to have just absence seizures to begin with. And it's rare for someone with epilepsy to not be on medication on top of that. And certainly growing up when you're, you have epilepsy and you're not on medication, you can't drive. So I had lots of situations where I was the odd one out. Um, but unlike people with rare diseases where it can take years to get a diagnosis. I was diagnosed in about 10 minutes in the neurologist office when I was a kid. So I didn't have that part of the journey, but I had other parts where I could at least empathize with people on the rare disease journey. So, but yeah, it's still, I went about it backwards. Right? So. <laughs> so if we go back to that kind of time of your original diagnosis, um, what sorts of communities and, and resources were available to support or help you at that time? And then maybe even, you know, as a, as a writer and, and lover of literature, you know, did you turn to or have you turned to writing or, or books to better make sense of your diagnosis? Um, so in terms of what was available back in the late 80s, I assume there was a support group in town just based on the history I know of, of my area. We never made use of that sort of thing. Um, my family at the time was more into alternative therapies, um, medical, the medical community didn't have the best reputation overall at the time. And interestingly enough, my seizures appeared to improve. So that sort of gave us a false sense of hope. What we didn't realize what we were doing is helping my body reach its baseline where it would naturally be with seizures, of course, but where it would naturally be if it were really healthy. So, um, because the, the, the medication that was available back in the 80s for my seizure type, I've learned now, 30-some-odd years later, um, has a higher chance of liver damage. So in my very specific situation, we probably made the right decision. Um, but there are lots of situations where that may not have been the right decision. So it worked out for us. But um, I was not connected to the community. There was no internet. I didn't even bother considering trying to look up what epilepsy was 
at the library and I loved the library. It was just, the whole discussion went literally over my head because I was 11 and shorter than the adults who were having the discussion <laughs> about me, right? So um, just part of me knew something was wrong with me. Part of me knew everyone wanted to fix it. But because I was 11, 12, 13, you know, I didn't know what was wrong with me because I wasn't aware I was having the seizures. So it was really an odd disability to have because you didn't know what was wrong with you. Um, I had to learn over time to pay attention to myself to pick up the seizures. And I'm quite certain now that I still am not aware of all of them. I mean, I had an EEG last year. And I like to use EEGs sort of test, you know, can I control them? Can I control them? The answer is no. Um, but I'm still not aware of all the seizures I'm having during the EEG because I still get the diagnosis. Yeah, you still have your seizures. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But I like to test and see what I can do. Um, so, yeah. Um, but now, like, it's social media. You know, um, I found a more enclosed area, virtual area online. Um, for epilepsy as well. Um, would be nice to have more of a registry where you know better privacy policies are in place for sure to talk to people. Um, I have yet to actually connect with my local group, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, I've just been working a lot last year or so. So um, then in terms of literature and reading, as a kid, I did not equate myself and my condition with any type of disability. Disability to me at that time meant those were the kids who were taken out of the classroom to go get extra help. And since I was not taken out of the classroom for extra help or had to go to a special school for extra help, I was therefore not disabled. So it's, it's a very, I don't know, I just didn't really deal with it in any way, shape or form through any writing as a child. Um, my favorite childhood author was Jean Little, and she wrote what we nowadays call disability fiction. Um, and she wrote about kids who were disabled and not get better at the end of the book because she realized that that was a problem with literature. She was trying to read to children back in the 70s, right? The Secret Garden. Colin is in a wheelchair. Um, but I recall from the movie, the Hallmark movie I used to watch as a kid, you know, he just had like a knobby spine, knobby legs, or knobby, whatever it was. And once he learned to walk, he was fine. And the kids she was teaching, the kids she was, yeah, the children she was teaching, um, they wouldn't, quote, get better. So she started writing books about children who were disabled and would stay disabled, but had other problems to deal with. Um, I never, I loved her books. They helped me learn about children who lived lives I would never live but I never saw myself in those books. So what I'm doing now is writing books um, about a myriad of characters, but I've now created a character um, who has absence seizures, different expressions, so that it's separate enough from me. I don't feel like I'm writing myself. It's too limiting that way. Um, but the point of that character is to start creating awareness that there are different types of epilepsy out there. And... By creating awareness, you can create empathy, and then hopefully, with time, acceptance. So back when when you were younger and um, first uh, diagnosed with uh, epilepsies, and 
you mentioned the you know, no no internet, certainly a different world. I think the, you know the concept of real world data um, didn't didn't exist, and and so fast forward to to now. Um, for patients out there who might be less familiar with this world of real world data um, and and aren't you know working with an organization like Pulse in this space, how would you describe to them what what is a patient registry and what is the value of participating in that sort of form of data collection? A patient registry is a really nice way, like in layperson's terms, it's a really nice way of organizing information about a specific disease. And the nice thing about it is that it can be set up such that patients can, to a certain extent, use their own language, but the information that comes out the other end is information that researchers can use. And they can use that information for um, drug development, for treatment development, um, and the beauty of a patient registry, one that's properly designed, is that it has to follow health privacy guidelines. Like when I share information on Twitter, anybody can use it. Anybody can see it. People will screenshot it. I can delete all I want. If someone screenshot my, you know, full confession of epilepsy, whatever, like that lives on for eternity, right? Um, but within the patient registry, everything is saved, um, anonymized um all the proper protocols are in place so that the data are useful but the person who supplied the data is not exposed on top of that it can create a community so that those with that disease um and perhaps others depending on how how should i put this depending on how that registry connects to others if the proper consent is given they can connect privately across the world, just within their country, within their region, whatever. Everything is controlled with the person who's providing the data with their consent, right? Whereas when you go on a social media platform, there's not too much consent given. <laughs> Your consent is you signed up, you agreed to all the rules, the rest too bad. So that's the beauty of it. And so, you know, in, in kind of bridging this notion of registries with your professional background in writing and storytelling and, and media, you know, one the, the first step in the process that a, a patient advocacy group will take is to actually build the re registry or the natural history study. And sort of the next step is, you know, communicating about that effort with their community. And so, um, you know, I, I wonder if you have any tips or strategies or recommendations for patient advocacy groups and, and leaders at those groups that are looking to promote their registries, uh, especially as it thinks, as it relates to thinking about each of the different audiences that they might be looking to target, whether that's patients or pharma or, or even researchers who see value in the data that are being collected. Whenever you're trying to reach other people with your communications, there are always two groups involved. The group that's producing the communications, so 
whoever is writing the group that's producing the blog post, that's producing the email, that's producing the, um, the new website page, and there is the group that's reading it. And I think sometimes when we're writing something, we forget that somebody's reading it. And so when you're writing your, let's just say blog post, so we stop with the long lists of things you can write. Let's say it's a blog post. When you're writing your blog post, you have to know exactly what you want to say, like what the purpose of your blog post is, but you also have to know why the other person, the other group, wants to read your blog post. It's not enough to just know what you want to say. So that's the first thing. The second thing is what do you want the other, what do you want the reader to do after they've read your blog post? Um, and I'd say the third item is that you want to figure out how are they going to find your blog post? Um, and that's where we get into sort of like SEO, which is search engine optimization. And that involves trying to figure out what words somebody might use to type into Google to you know, do their search, do the research, and where your blog post might show up. And there are some things that we can talk about if you want to um, that can help you figure that out a bit. But the really important thing about writing anything, blog post, email, website page, is that you always have to think of two people, your story as well as so the writer as well as the reader. Before we wrap up, I'm hoping we could maybe get a little tactical here. Um, are there any kind of free content production or, or management tools, things maybe like Canva, which I know we've used here at Pulse to, to create graphics? Um, anything that you might re recommend to uh, a patient advocacy group that they should explore as they're thinking about, you know, creating content or managing um content that they create so when you're um okay so let's say if they're starting from scratch um you know wordpress for example is a free service that uh, can host your website but your domain would be for example um you know wordpress.com slash my rare disease you should still think of registering your domain name so i have one that's lauriestrauss.com for example and the reason you want to do that is because you want to own your content, and that's really important. If it's wordpress.com slash disease, WordPress has your content. Um, oh, sorry. I'm getting really technical here. I apologize. But no, um, it's okay. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it, it gets messy. Um, you want to back up your content. You want to own your content. It's because if someone else's website goes down, you've lost everything. And I think sometimes when volunteers get together and they look for all the free services that they can use, they save everything on free services and those services go down, they lose everything. And this is also important because um, what, some, what some volunteer organizations will do is they'll just use Facebook. They'll just use Instagram. But then where that becomes a problem is that people have to register and create an account in order to access that content. And when these platforms change the rules of who can see that content, suddenly the volunteer organization that's sharing all their content on someone else's platform, their content's not being shared. And so if you have your own domain, if you pay for your own website, the rules are yours, not somebody else's. So that's what I'm trying to get at with all of this, 
I know I'm getting technical. Um, Canva, I use it as well. Um, WordPress, absolutely. Um, one tool I really enjoy is called answerthepublic.com. And they let you do three queries a day for free. And what's really nice about this tool is when people aren't used to writing, the first question they have is, what do I write? You know, people say I should be blogging all the time or to create awareness, we need to like be blogging all the time and you don't need to be blogging all the time. But if you feel like you need to do some blogging or you want to do some social media and you don't know what to write, with answerthepublic.com, you put in two words, you know, no more than three, but just one, two or three words. And they will show you a list of what people have been asking about those one, two or three words in the past 24 hours on Google by country. You have to choose your country. So it just gives you lots of ideas of questions that people have been asking that you could be in a position to answer. So then you take one of those questions, you make that the topic of your blog post, and voila, you have things to write about. So those would be my tips. Great, thanks. And and no problem on getting technical. I did did ask you to to us to wrap up with something <laughs> a little bit more tactical and technical. So um, that was great. Yeah. Well, Lori, kind of- thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us, Lori, and um, sharing your experience, not only with our listeners today, but also with, with Pulse as part of our team. Thanks so much for having me, Joshua. It was great to be on your show.